Welcome to the official Espigan podcast, hosted by Dr. Alex Noisley. It's a new year, at least here in the Espigan podcast recording studio. And of course, it'll probably be a new year still, whenever you people are listening to this. I'm back again with Espigan Journal Club and with a new moderator, Dr. Jake Mann. His maiden voyage, his first solo flight. And uh, normally we would extend a certain amount of courtesy to somebody who was taking this on for the first time. But with Jake, heck no, uh, it's going to be a dogfight and I'm going to try to shoot him down. He has chosen two articles for us, one from JPGN and one from Not. That from JPGN was assembled by co-authors from European and Israeli centers and was published in Journal of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition, of course. Calvaram et al. Non-invasive scores are poorly predictive of histological fibrosis in pediatric fatty liver disease. Jake, um, why don't you sketch for us how this study was assembled and how it worked? Absolutely. Happy New Year. So this study was broadly aiming to assess how good the previously described non-invasive fibrosis scores are in the context of fatty liver disease, now tend to be called steatotic liver disease, and how could they marry up with histological findings as previously reported by each local centre. So this was a completely retrospective study with about 10 centres across uh, Europe um, contributing several patients coming together to give a reasonably big cohort of 450 and then in all those patients looked back at their blood tests at the time of biopsy to see how well they uh, looked back at their biopsy their blood test at the time of biopsy and calculated these scores that other groups had described not just blood tests but also other parameters such as waist circumference or absolutely yes so these scores often are kind of composite clinical biochemical scores. The idea is that they are simple and easy and avoid, as you would say, a needle. Do they include elastography? In this context, no. These were mostly described over the last sort of 12 years or so. So elastography was not as widely used and had not yet been incorporated into the various algorithms. The idea was that these were tests that anyone, even in a non-specialist centre, could use and then would give a high or low probability of either ruling in advanced fibrosis or ruling uh, out advanced fibrosis, so that then you could stratify patients for follow-up without having to uh, do a biopsy. Advanced fibrosis or any fibrosis? Well... All the scores were optimised originally for different purposes. Some had been optimised for the presence of any fibrosis, some for the, the presence of advanced fibrosis. And I think this is where perhaps some of the, um, shall we say, uh, bias may have come into the de derivation of the original scores. They were maybe derived from an individual single cohort which had a specified either high or low proportion of those with advanced fibrosis or any fibrosis. And the main take home from this paper is that when you assess it in multiple other external cohorts, large cohorts, broadly all the scores perform pretty poorly. There's two more things I'd like to take up with you. One is that the results were compared with results 
from a similar cohort in which biopsy had been undertaken for fatty liver disease, but no fibrosis had been found. That's just a, a group of controls, the Utrecht and Amsterdam patients was. And then the other thing I'd like to take up with you is the idea that similar scorings, similar non-invasive scorings purportedly work well in adults. Yeah, I think that the... Whoa, that's a discrepancy then. <laughs> the, well, the main uh, variable that the, well, the big difference between in children and adults is the use of age. So in adults, oh, age is a key okay. component of all these scores, and therefore it gets essentially removed in the children's scoring system because there doesn't seem to be really a consistent, um, certainly across different cohorts, a consistent correlation between age and stage of fibrosis. So once you remove that major factor, the scores are so much weaker. The other thing is that the models are generally trained off cohorts where there is a very low proportion of those with advanced fibrosis and that is even within cohorts with substantial selection bias for more advanced patients these are generally from specialist centers and so in this paper they had about 10 percent with f2 or sorry f3 or f4 but the original cohorts may have only had a handful of cases with advanced fibrosis whereas in adults they would have a slightly higher proportion, bigger numbers, and using age, and then they can derive, in theory, better scores. I'm impressed, or at least I'm taken, by the verb that you used a little bit earlier. You talked about training these systems, training these scorings. Now, when I hear training, I'm starting to think about artificial intelligence. I'm starting to think about, are you going to take the bread out of an honest histopathologist's mouth by uh, replacing liver biopsy? I suppose I meant training in the sense of machine learning algorithms rather than uh, artificial intelligence. So these, most of these scores were originally derived using multivariable regression with an additional, with an initial training set and then a validation set. Uh, where the parameters are defined as opposed to artificial intelligence. My understanding is where you sort of say, this is what I want you to do, figure out a way to do it. And there's a, yes, a training set and a validation set involved, but it's distinct from uh, how most of these scores have been derived. And certainly, uh, at least in this study, it's a million miles away from giving an image to a computer and getting it to figure out a, a decision or a, uh, a conclusion, which would otherwise be done by a expert. Well, Jake, I guess I'll stop biting your ankle at that particular spot, but I'm going to engage my teeth elsewhere. Um, you know, I looked at the list of co-authors here going through it and saying, well, I wonder which ones of my pals were involved in all this. And <clears throat> I found out that there was no histopathology review board involved in making certain that the diagnosis of fibrosis or stage or whatnot were reality-based. And that is certainly one of the key limitations of this paper, that it is a quick and dirty, shall we say, retrospective review based on 
each centre's individual histopathologist's diagnosis, which has then been recorded, and then the data has been extracted, which is quite different to what I would describe as the properly conducted studies like this, most of which have been done in adults, or I think as has been done by the Nash CRN, where they have had uh, you know, digitization of the slides and then review by independent histopathologists and are then able to assess for concordance. And uh, you know, that would have added an additional layer of accuracy. Well, and then there's just one final matter to take up, and that is, uh, I, I don't think that you declared a conflict of interest here, uh, Mr. Co-author. Well, I had to pick a paper to discuss and i thought it was an interesting paper to discuss you'd it have is things to talk about it i've had a, things to talk about it is an interesting paper jake but any stick will do to beat a dog with what can i tell you absolutely um, here the the point however at least for this hepatopathologist is keep your needles at the ready anything else just won't do the job have i overstated that I think that is a fair assessment that at the moment, if you truly want to uh, know this degree of fibrosis, then the non-invasive scores will not cut the mustard. Not cut the mustard. All right. Well, however you got to the right answer, I'm glad you got to it. And I'm going to go out and make that down payment on the Lexus now. Let's turn to the other selection. Um, you're taking us out of clinical medicine here, really, or there's only a brief bit of clinical medicine involved in an article from Colorado, Colorado and uh, a double handful of co-authors on that side of the Atlantic in this, which came out on the 1st of January of this year in Journal of Experimental Medicine. From Louis et al., a partial human LCK defect causes a T-cell immunodeficiency with intestinal inflammation. I don't enter the world of immunology, in particular T-cell differentiation, without a gun and a compass and a guide to edible herbs. It's just not a place where I feel at all comfortable. Might want a sextant along as well. Um, as I read the as I read the article, evaluation of two brothers born to first cousin parents who clinically manifested a moderately severe immunodeficiency, found that they harbored a novel variant in LCK, a gene that encodes lymphocyte-specific protein tyrosine kinase, or LCK. LCK works in regulating T-cell differentiation and subset differentiation in particular. The effects of the variant included chronic diarrhea but uh, I don't identify any histopathologic assessment of the bowel mucosa in these two kids. However, when you knocked out the same amino acid or substituted the same amino acid with the same alternative in knock-in mice, they had chronic intestinal mucosal inflammation, which was not a feature in LCK knockout mice. When you immunophenotyped the siblings and the mice, there was selective deficiency in numbers of regulatory T-cells. The boys were successfully treated with bone marrow transplantation. One of them died of uh, 
complication, but the other seems to be ticking along. And the mice could be successfully treated either by topping up regulatory T cells or by depleting T cells that express CD4. Uh, the people who are interested in T cell differentiation will be chewing this over for how it tells us about what it tells us about how that differentiation works and what the signals are and what the individual amino acid residues do. But that's well above my pay grade. As I remember, you said this is a good article to look at because of parallels that can be drawn with genetic contributions to chronic inflammatory bowel disease. Have I summed that up accurately, Jake? Spot on. Well, now I need to hear more about those parallels. So I think this is interesting for several reasons. Firstly, this draws on the point of there is almost no limit to how detailed you can go into studying individual patients to then draw biologically relevant conclusions. So LCK, complete loss of function in humans tends to cause severe combined immunodeficiency, SCID. Whereas these patients who had a point mutation had a significant phenotype, but it was slightly more subtle. Um, so a form of combined immunodeficiency. And that was drawn out in the fact that they presented with this failure to thrive, chronic infantile diarrhea, recurrent infections, some of the which were you know, quite significant, so getting an esophageal stricture from recurrent candidiasis. So hopefully the kind of things that would prick your ears as a gastroenterologist and make you think there's something funky going on here. But from that, then they ended up down the route of bone marrow transplantation and exome sequencing, um, which is a established therapy for some of the monogenic forms of very early onset inflammatory bowel disease. Aha, uh -huh, there's a connection. Okay. Yeah. So some of the forms of uh, monogenic inflammatory bowel disease are driven by essentially immune dysregulation, which leads to chronic mucosal inflammation. And thereby, if you are able to <clears throat> if you are able to fix the underlying immune defect, then the mucosal inflammation is gone. Similarly, there are other forms of hmm. uh, chronic infantile diarrhea where the same thing happens. And I liked this paper because they have really gone into a huge amount of detail, including running the gamble of making a knock-in mouse and then demonstrating this skew towards T17 inflammation, which is generally felt to be harmful in um, IBD, um, and they have reduced T regulatory cells, which most people would be familiar as tending to switch off inflammation. So whilst there's a whole load of quite complicated science that they've done into there, conceptually, it sort of packages together to marry into what we understand as about the fundamental biology of the more common disorders that we treat. Let me um resort to concrete anecdotal imagery or thinking. Uh, it's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> so here we have the kid's six weeks old and has thrush and has diarrhea and doesn't seem to be gaining weight. And he's in your clinic, Jay. What comes next? 
I guess it depends on the severity of everything. So it sounds like these cases here, they had really quite severe failure to thrive and chronic persistent diarrhea that started at a very early age. And they had not just a bit of thrush, but they had profound candidiasis, which would go with an immunodeficiency. And then the other kind of alarm bell is that there, that there is a history of consanguinity and <clears throat> and that there is a sibling as well. When the sibling comes along with similar features as well, then, then you would start to think more of a genetic form. But I think that for many of the chronic infantile diarrheas where particularly if they have persistent loose stools, even despite withdrawal of feed, then you would start to head down a route of thinking of genetic forms of the disorder. What's required in order to situate toward the chronic inflammatory bowel disease? Well, in that case, you would have a tissue diagnosis in almost all cases to mm -hmm, diagnose mm -hmm. very early onset IBD. Can't um, do without the biopsy. As a histopathologist, I want to emphasize that. Need the biopsy. <laughs> the message of the day, isn't it? Absolutely. And then, at least in the UK, we have a, a specific gene panel which can be sent on uh, patients who presented, certainly with uh, under five years with IBD, which assays for the, the such significant variance in those genes. This patient would have fallen through that set of uh, through cracks in that set of testing, wouldn't he? Uh, yeah, and that's interesting. So these patients would have had may have been picked up if they had whole exome sequencing, particularly if it was performed as a as a trio analysis, as they they had done here. Now, mm -hmm. I think that they had that this done here from a more of a research perspective. The variant was described as having a high probability of pathogenicity, which is a mm -hmm, essentially a mm -hmm. computer-generated score to reflect how likely they think this mutation is to cause uh, an impairment to the protein. But it's different to a, a complete stop mutation. Mm -hmm. So whether or not it would actually have been flagged as a truly pathogenic variant um, if you had sent an individual whole exome is unclear. Right. Um, LCK variants are part and parcel of your IBD panel or not? Not that I'm aware of. They would probably form part of a, a general deficiency. Mm -hmm. Yeah, part of the mm -hmm. SCID panel, I think. And this patient, although again, described in the title or at least I inferred from the title that the patient had intestinal inflammation. Um, nothing in the clinical vignette, the very brief clinical vignette, states that that was actually established. The intestinal inflammation seems to have been a mouse observation. Um, so truth in advertising, and uh, it never hurts to it, it never hurts to sell it um, as as vigorously as you can. But it's yeah. not. Yeah. Go on. I know. I think. That, I think that they they clearly hadn't had any tissue evidence to demonstrate intestinal inflammation in these children. What is unclear is whether the 
chronic diarrhea was a result of the recurrent GI infections Multiple that they described, yes, or yes. whether if they had, for example, put them on an elemental feed, or even if they put them on PN, whether they had persistent diarrhea. That's not clear, and I guess would be part of our clinical workup and, and would help help establish whether the mouse was such a true representation of the human. I'd have welcomed that, but you can't uh, can't have everything. Uh, nor can we have enough time to go fully into all the nooks and crannies, the ins and outs of these two papers. Nonetheless, I've had a good time chatting about them with you, and I think you've... Uh, well, let's see, you've reached home airfield if we're talking about an, a dogfight, or you've come safely into your home port if this was a maiden voyage, either way. Thank you, Jake. Thanks very much. It's been a great start to the year.